All right, please take your Bibles this evening and turn to Luke 10. Finishing Luke 10 tonight, I wanted to finish Luke 10 last week, but uh, after I had finished um, that parable of the Good Samaritan, writing it, I realized that we were not going to be able to get through everything that we wanted, that I w- would want to express about this last little chunk of Luke 10. So we, uh, I, I extended it another week. I'm excited about next week because it's going to begin in Luke 11, digging into prayer. Uh, the, the disciples ask Jesus, teach us to pray. And then Jesus gives three specific concepts of prayer after that in the next 12 verses that we're going to um, look through together. And it's so important for us to pray. And, you know, sometimes we say, well, I don't know how to pray. Well, the disciples say, Lord, teach us to pray. And this is his response. So we're going to learn how to pray from the mouth of Jesus himself. So I'm excited about that. But first things first. Two weeks ago on Sunday night, uh, when we were studying the reaction of the disciples to the power which Christ had given them through his name uh, to do many wonderful works, particularly to cast out devils. Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. Uh, he gave them a warning. He said, I saw Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Rejoice not that I've given you this power, but rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Don't rejoice in the power, but rejoice in the one behind the power. It was a warning to be careful that our spiritual success does not become the seed of spiritual failure. That our spiritual success does not become the root of a false, of a, of a, a corrupt tree that would grow so that we become proud even of the spiritual success that we might have through the Lord. That was Satan's, Lucifer's initial failure. That was his problem as he took that which God had gifted him with and he exalted himself through it. We thought upon the dangers of misprioritizing our ministry in Christ. And there are indeed many well-meaning men and women who have fallen into unexpected spiritual failure through the seed of pride, which began when they started rejoicing in their successes in ministry rather than in the God behind that success, rather than in the grace behind that success. And tonight we're going to explore what we might call another vulnerability of the believer, one which hits closest to home, I believe, among ministers in one sense, uh, but it certainly applies to all of us as believers. It can manifest itself in any of our lives. We speak this evening of the danger that comes to those who get so busy serving that they stop growing. They are so busy putting out that they forget to take in. They're so busy with the physical elements that they fall short of the spiritual elements. Indeed, we even thought about this in one way this morning as we talked about worship and we said when we come to the Lord and worship, we need to come with our ears open and our mouth shut. We need to listen. Well, tonight we're going to see a contrast between one woman who labored and one woman who listened. Uh, three years ago, my, 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 my son's birthday was two days ago and he's three years old now. So about three years ago, my son was born and some of you know the story surrounding his birth. Other ones don't. Some of the, uh, some people know uh, in, in a more personal way than others. But, um, long story short, Benjamin's birth was a bit of a trial. Um, I, I was very sick. My wife was very sick at the time. We had a home birth. I ended up delivering him myself. Uh, after the, the, the end of all of that, um, my wife was stuck in bed. She actually ended up being stuck in bed for a couple of weeks. And um, I was still sick after that day. And it was a difficult situation. But the house needed to be run. So I woke up. Uh, it was a Monday night. I woke up on Tuesday morning, and I was actually feeling somewhat better. I was very thankful for that. The Lord was good. So I got up. I started doing laundry. I started uh, taking care of the kids, all of that. My, my girls at the time were two and a half years old. Uh, and, and so it was a busy time, but things were going well. But as I went through the day, I started feeling worse. And by the end of the day, I was actually worse at the end of Tuesday night than I had even been Monday. And Monday, Monday was a bad day. And Wednesday, it was even worse still. I was fading. I was not able to function. I was hardly able to function. And it wasn't until Wednesday night that I realized what had happened. Why I had faded after I was recovering. 
Because when I started feeling like I was feeling pretty well, I started doing the work and I stopped drinking. I stopped hydrating. Hydrating is what I mean by that. I stopped drinking water, right? So I stopped drinking water and, I, you know, grow, growing up, uh, my, my mom's a nurse and, and when we got sick, one of the things she always said is drink, drink a lot, drink a lot of water, always drink, always drink, always drink. And, and I was like, well, whatever, mom, okay. And, and I finally realized during this time that it is important to hydrate when you're sick. It's important to drink water when you're sick. And I started drinking water and over the next day and a half, I was recovering quite well. And I was starting to feel better again. Once I began to hydrate, my body began to recover again. And it amazed me just how important it was while I was busy putting out that my body was in desperate need to take in as well. And you know, sometimes in our Christian lives, we can miss this. We can be so busy putting out that we forget to take in. We can be so busy doing other things, sometimes right things, maybe not, right, whatever it might be, right priorities, wrong priorities, even, even good things in my life, I can be so busy ministering that I'm just sucked dry. And there's a potential in our lives, if we're not careful, to forget to take in when we're giving out. And you know, Sometimes the problem can be just the opposite as well. Sometimes we're taking in all the time. We're soaking and soaking and soaking and listening to sermons all the time. But then we never put out. And so we fail to progress in our Christian lives because there's simply no room left to fill. Now either way, we're not quite where we need to be. And that's what we're going to talk about this evening. First, let's walk through the text. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 38. We'll read verses 38 and 39. The Bible says this. Now it came to pass as they went that he entered into a certain village. And a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. We're introduced to a set of sisters here named Martha and Mary. We find only that Jesus went to a certain city. And he was received into the house of a woman named Martha, and apparently she had her sister living with her. It it seems as though from the text um, that it was her house. We don't quite know why it was her house, whether she had a husband who had died or whatever the case may be, but it was her house. Now we must go to the other Gospels to fill the gaps, particularly the Gospel of John. And in John we're introduced to Martha and Mary through the events surrounding the death of their brother, a man named Lazarus. And we read this in John 11, verses 1-3. through 3. The Bible says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus, of Bethany, the town of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother, Lazarus, was sick. Therefore his sisters sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. So we find several things to be true of these women here. First, we find out that they lived in Bethany. They lived in Bethany. Now, the, the, the town of Bethany was a town that was approximately two miles from Jerusalem on the opposite side of the Mount of Olives from the great city of David. It would be here in Bethany that Jesus would raise their brother Lazarus from the dead. It was also here in Bethany where just prior to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Mary anointed him unto his burial, as described in John 12. And before we move past this point of the Marys, I do want to take a moment and get a little academic with you for just a moment and try to understand a bit of the, try try to parse, try to settle in our minds some of the Marys that we find in Scripture. Uh, There are many Marys in the New Testament. There's many Marys in the New Testament. And it can all get confusing. And while it's not essential necessarily for us to understand all the Marys, uh, the Bible does give us uh, the the information necessary to parse it out to some degree, and I think it would be beneficial to us uh, to know which is which in, in certain circumstances. So let's take a moment to parse it all out. In the New Testament, um, the name, which in the English is Mary, in the Greek is actually written as Miriam 
or Maria. It's never actually seen as Mary itself. Uh, they are the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew name Miriam, which was the name given to Moses' sister, right, Miriam, as with the name of one other woman uh, found in a genealogy in First Chronicles 4. And though we do not necessarily find many women in the Old Testament with this name, it's quite obvious that by the New Testament this name was everywhere. Uh, we, we have a bunch of Marys uh, in the New Testament. So this name became very popular. That's most likely because uh, during the reign of Herod, um, Herod the first that would be, his second wife, her name was Miriam. And she was the final representative of the Hasmonean dynasty. If you've uh, been through our, our intertestamental period class where you learn about the 450 years between Malachi and Matthew, or if you've studied that period at all, you know that the Hasmonean dynasty was extremely influential and important in Jewish history, particularly leading up to the time of Christ. And she was the last in that line of uh, Hasmonean leaders. And so she would have been very popular. Many people would have named their daughters after her. That's most likely why the name Mary was so important. And as I mentioned, interestingly enough, there is never a time in the New Testament where in the Greek the name is actually spelled Mary. It's always Miriam or Maria. Every instance is this way. There is, however, precedent to assume regionally that many of these women were called Mary in the same way that a Jonathan might be characteristically called John or a Benjamin might be characteristically called Ben or um, a Catherine might be characteristically called Kate. The Marys, the Mariams of this particular region were characteristically called Mary. And as we walk through the New Testament, we find the name Mary come up 46 times. And they certainly are all not the same. So as we think about this, we are going to identify several Marys. And some of these Marys, as we walk through this list, are actually the same. And, and some of these Marys are not the same. And let's just parse through this for the next few moments, and then we'll get back into the text. Mary, the mother of Jesus. We might consider um, this Mary to be the most popular, the most well-known Mary. Uh, her references are most clear. She is found throughout Jesus' life. Of course, she's found at his birth. She married Joseph. They lived together in Nazareth. Uh, she comes up in Jesus' adult years at the marriage of Canaan. Cana, excuse me, right? Uh, she's at the marriage of Cana when Jesus turns the water into wine, uh, when he begins his miracle working. Uh, we also know from Matthew 12 that there was a time where Mary and her sons, Jesus' brethren, came to seek him out in Capernaum. We see that she was present at Jesus' crucifixion, where John the Apostle was charged with her well-being. And then finally, we see her present with the apostles in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, in that upper room. Likely, she was there throughout all of the amazing events that would take place during Pentecost. So that's Mary, the mother of Jesus, and what we know about her. Mary Magdalene is the second Mary we consider. She's called Mary Magdalene because she was from a city called Magdala. She was a very devout follower of Jesus who, according to Luke chapter 8 verse 2, uh, had, 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 been, had been possessed with seven devils and had them cast out of her. Now remember we mentioned when we were there that uh, the seven devils could be literal or it could be the uh, metaphorical use of the, the number seven, which is the number of perfection or the number of completion in the Bible. And so it may have been that she actually had seven devils, or it may have been that she, uh, that the text is describing her as simply being completely overcome by demonic oppression. One way or another, Jesus casts those de demons out of her, and she, among several other women, regularly ministered unto Jesus of their substance. So they would regularly be a part of supporting Jesus in his ministry. And it specifically mentions the names of the women, not their husbands, but these women as being ones who would regularly help and support Jesus along the way throughout his ministry. She, Mary Magdalene, was present at the crucifixion present at Jesus' burial, and was one of the Marys who, who visited Jesus' tomb the morning of the resurrection, along with one other Mary called the other Mary in the text, and we'll identify her here in just a moment. Let's do that now. The other Mary. 
We find a mention of Mary, the mother of James, Mary, the mother of Joseph, and the other Mary. And I believe that these are all the same woman. Now, complicating this is the fact that Mary, the mother of Jesus, had a son named James and had a son named Joseph as well. So Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, could be Mary, Jesus's mother, but most likely is not Jesus's mother in the sense of these other Marys, because why would they call her Mary, the mother of James or Mary, the mother of Joseph, if she's the mother of Jesus? They would have called her Mary, the mother of Jesus in the text. So most likely not that Mary. Uh, this Mary was very likely, uh, uh, and, and we know from Mark chapter 15, verse 40, that this, that there was a Mary who was the mother of James, uh, of Joseph and of James, the less he's called in the text. That would be an unfortunate name to have, right? James, the less. Why James, the less? Well, because Jesus had two Apostles named James, didn't he? He had James, who was the brother of John, and James and John were the sons of Zebedee. And then there was another James, who was the son of Alphaeus. And that James, being not one of Jesus' three, right, Peter, James, and John, he was the other James, and so he got the title James the Less. It's just kind of the way it was for him. So he's James the less, which wasn't necessarily James the inferior, just James probably the younger or James the other. The idea there. So uh, this woman, this Mary, was the Mary of Joseph and of James the less. It is in Matthew uh, 27 verse 56 that Mary the son of James and Joseph is introduced along with Mary Magdalene. As the, and an unnamed mother, the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Those three women are put together. James and John's mother, who we don't know her name. Mary, the, son, the mother of James and Joseph, and then Mary Magdalene. Those three women there in Matthew 27, 56. Now later, as listed on um, the screen... In Matthew 27, 61 and Matthew 28, 1, this same woman, this Mary, the mother of James and James the Less and Joseph, is called the other Mary. So the other Mary is very likely Mary, the mother of James and Joseph. That would be the mother of James the Less, the son of Alphaeus, which means this Mary's husband was Alphaeus. Clear as mud? Continuing. Mary, the wife of Cleopas. Mary, the wife of Cleopas, is mentioned as being present at the cross in James in John 19, verse 25. There are some who believe this Mary is the same as the mother of James and Joseph, the other Mary, but I'm not so sure, because as I mentioned, James the Less was called James the son of Alphaeus, and this woman's husband was Cleopas. Some people say, well, it's actually probably the same guy, because if you take Alphaeus... And you use the, I believe it was the Aramaic equivalent. It's very, very close to, to Cleopas. So it's possible, but in my, my opinion, unlikely. What we do know is that this woman's husband was named Cleopas. We know nothing more than that she was at the cross on the day of the crucifixion. Which means if Mary, the wife of Cleopas, was there, Mary, Jesus' mother, was there, uh, Mary Magdalene was there, uh, Mary's were as thick as mosquitoes on Gethsemane that day. It was a busy day for the Marys um, at Gethsemane. And the final Mary, uh, before we get to Mary of Bethany, I'm sorry I didn't change the slide here, but we're talking about Mary, the mother of Mark. I didn't change the highlighting there. But Mary, the mother of Mark. Um, Mary, the mother of Mark, is only mentioned in Acts 12, verse 12. She's the mother of John Mark. And as the mother of John Mark, that means she is the aunt of Barnabas. Because Barnabas was John Mark's um, cousin. And so um, that would be the relation there, not just as the mother of Mark, but also as the aunt of Barnabas. And finally, we get to Mary of Bethany. That's our Mary this evening. Our, our Mary of the night. Sister of Martha and Lazarus. The woman who anointed Jesus just prior to his death. But remember, when we were in Luke 7, not the harlot who anointed Jesus in Luke 7. That is not Mary. And not Mary Magdalene that was possessed by devils, according to Luke 8. This is a different Mary. This woman was a devoted follower, a woman of character, 
And she was a part of a family who was deeply loved by Jesus. So much so that he came to raise Lazarus from the dead. All right. So back into the text. Mary and Martha in Martha's house. Mary, we find, was sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening, hearing his word. But there's a sharp contrast between what Mary is doing and what Martha is doing in this time. And we read that contrast in verse 40. The Bible says, But Martha was cumbered about much serving, and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. So while Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, Martha was busy being hostess. And notice exactly how the text describes her service. Cumbered about. To, to be cumbered means to be loaded down. In the Greek, it literally means to be dragged about or figuratively to be distracted. Luke does... Now, now what she was doing is no doubt um, diligent, responsible. But Luke doesn't describe what she's doing in the terms of diligence and responsibility. He describes what she's doing in the terms of distraction and labor of being loaded down and being distracted. And that's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting that as her efforts are being described, they are not being described in a positive light, but in a negative light, as a distraction to her. She's wholly consumed and distracted by this labor. And at some point, Martha comes to Jesus No doubt after some manner of time where she was privately fighting with frustration, maybe anger. We don't want to spurn her character. We're not going to make many assumptions. But she says this to Jesus. She says, Dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Don't you care that I'm I'm doing all the work and my sister is sitting here? Make her help me. Bid her, therefore, that she help me. It's interesting that, that rather than go to Mary herself, Martha speaks up to Jesus here. By this we might understand that Martha thought Mary was doing something very wrong. And in order to satisfy her frusta- frustration, she didn't just want to talk to Mary herself, but instead she speaks up to the rabbi. She speaks up to the great teacher. She speaks up to the friend, the man, uh, uh, the honored guest, and says, look, you need to tell her To help me. She wanted Mary, it would seem, to be publicly noticed in some way by their moral teacher and encouraged, if not rebuked, to help her. Now at this point, let us be careful to remember our context. Because remember that this account is given in Luke 10. And Luke 10 is a themed chapter. And it's been themed around priorities. So the 70 were sent out at the beginning of Luke 10. In Jesus' power, and Jesus called them to rejoice, not in the power, but in the blessing of salvation. Have the right priorities here. Don't have your priority on the power itself. Have your priority upon the God behind the power. And then we see this, the parable of the Good Samaritan. The lawyer who sought to trap Jesus, he had a right understanding of the law, but through an improper perspective, he sought to bend the law to meet his capabilities so that he could feel self-righteous under the law. And Jesus wouldn't have it. So he says, your, your neighbor is even your enemy, right? And now, Martha is doing what is culturally expected of her. What is culturally right, but Luke says she's cumbered about with much serving. And she felt that in doing so, she was being the better woman. But notice Jesus' response to her in verses 41 and 42. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Jesus is very gentle here with Martha. And he describes her as being careful. That word, as we know it from our King James Bibles, means to be full of care. When we think of careful, uh, I tell my children to be careful all the time, right? They pick up their drink and I say, be careful, use two hands. 
Right? The idea being, watch what you are doing. But when we think of it in the biblical context, while it still means the same thing, um, we kind of narrowed the meaning today. Uh, we think of Philippians chapter 4. Be careful for nothing. Right? But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to let your request be made known unto God. It doesn't mean never be careful, right? Uh, to, uh, you know, you're just walking around knocking things over and tripping over things. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean never be careful. What it means is don't be full of cares. Don't be full of anxieties. Don't be full of worries. Don't be full of, of, of concerns all the time. And that's the idea that Jesus is, is using with Martha here. Martha, you're full of cares. You're full of worries and anxieties. You're, 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 you're cumbered about much serving. Everything has to be just so, and you're missing out on something. Because you're, you're so focused on, on, on what you're doing that you're missing out on, on what you, you could have. He calls her careful. He calls her troubled about many things. Martha was a worrier a little bit, we might assume, a fretter. Again, I don't want to spend more time inferring elements of her character from the events at hand. We don't know that much about her character. We know that Jesus loved them all deeply, Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. He loved them all very much. We know that they were were very kind to him, very good to him. Uh, From a cultural perspective, we know that Martha was doing the right things. It was her home, apparently, according to Luke. Uh, She probably felt responsibility for her home, for her guests. This is all culturally right. This is all appropriate in one sense. But, you know, we also need to understand lines. We need to understand commitments. We need to understand timing, don't we? From a character perspective, there's little doubt she wanted Jesus and the others to feel welcome and comfortable. And for nothing related to her hospitality to get in the way of fellowship. And to this end, Jesus' response is not exactly what we might expect, is it? That Jesus would, if I may put it this way, take the side of Mary, who is not fulfilling the cultural responsibilities of her day, but rather sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening with all the others, is a little bit startling when you think about it culturally. And from this we learn a lesson. Yet another opportunity to gain some perspective on life. That there are times when our care for the spiritual ought to override our care for the physical. So that when the physical and material things of this life, even the good things would threaten the spiritual. We should elevate the spiritual at the expense of the physical and material. And so let's apply this evening and we'll take this principle, this perspective that Jesus is teaching and we'll try to round it out and understand how it relates to us in our lives. Point number one that I'd like us to consider as we apply uh, is this. Labor cannot replace learning. Labor cannot replace learning. This has to do with ministry. At the beginning of the service, I gave you an illustration of a time in my life where I was putting out physically, but not taking in enough to compensate for it. If we think of our lives as a spiritual sponge, we understand that in order to have something to put out, we must first have something put in. A sponge soaks up water And then it's able to distribute that water in effective quantities over a large area. But as the water on the outside of the sponge is used, the water that is inside that sponge that has been absorbed, uh, it replenishes, right? The water on the outside of the sponge. Until the water on the inside of the sponge is all gone, and the water on the outside of the sponge is all gone, and once all of the water has been used up, what do you need to do in order to continue to effectively use the sponge? You have to dip that sponge back in water to soak it again so that it can continue to be usable. And if, if we may use this analogy, our spiritual lives are in, in, much, uh, in, in, in some ways the same. You cannot put out if you're not taking in. And when we minister, when we serve... Even the menial task, I'm not even just talking about ministry, even in the menial task, even in the things that we're doing day in and day out, if you are not taking in, you will find that that your ability to put out will be marred. In other words, when, when do I know that I'm not taking in enough? When I start grumbling about mowing the lawn, or cleaning the bathroom, or washing a dish, 
or organizing my closet or my desk. I start grumbling about all that stuff and I, I start to realize that maybe I'm not taking in enough to keep, keep that sponge moist. And then it only heightens in ministry, right? When do I know that I'm not taking in enough? When my preaching becomes a little dry. When my study becomes less fruitful. When I can't focus. When I'm struggling to want to do what the Lord has called me to do. It's because I've been putting out, but I've not been replenishing. Whether it's myself as a pastor who preaches several times a week and I have to find the time to soak so I can give. Or whether it's you as a parent who spends all week serving and spiritually instructing your children. If you don't take in, you will dry up. And by the way, taking in is not just necessarily sitting under the preaching. But it's absorbing the word of God. Right? It's not just hearing words. It's meditating on those words. It's not just reading your Bible in the morning to check something off a list. It's spending time with the Lord every day. So what are the ways that we are, that we absorb? Well, daily Bible reading, daily prayer, listening to the preaching of the Word of God, regular fellowship among believers. And don't miss that last one. Regular fellowship among believers. But what can happen in our lives? Well, you get busy, right? First, you get busy, and so you, your Bible reading every day and your time of prayer doesn't happen. Then you miss church, or you come to church, and you're so busy serving the needs of the church that you're not being taught, or the teaching is so marginal that you don't get taught anything anyway. And you leave sometimes more empty than when you arrived. What a shame that we would leave church more empty than when we arrived. Then we have people over to our house and the time is spent fixing meals and playing games so that we, there's actually no sharpening one of another when we have Christian fellowship. There's no Christian fellowship going on. And next thing you know, there lacks any venue during your week through which you're actually able to adequately soak in and then you feel dried up all the time. And there's nothing to give out. So that when your children need direction or when your friend come, calls and says, I'm just having a bad day. Or when you get up behind the pulpit, as I do on a Sunday, and I lead the music, and I, I preach, and whatever else that needs to be done. Or whatever it might be. Or you're asked to do a task that's not normally your task. Or you're asked, asked to do a task that is normally your task. And you're going and you're, you're, you're uh, emptying the trash. And as you're emptying the trash, you're grumbling and you're complaining and you feel dried up. There's nothing there spiritually. There's no joy of the Lord. You're not thinking whether therefore we eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do all to the glory of God. You're not thinking whatsoever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not unto men. So that when you're taking out the trash, you can even do that unto the Lord. But you have to be full in order to have that perspective. And if you dry up because you're not, a, you're not taking in then you're going to become ineffective. Consequently, the primary purpose of the assembly is to fill you up. We come together as an assembly to fill you up so that you can go out into your week and you can give back out. You come here on Sunday, you fill up. Maybe you get a top off on Tuesday night. And then you go out into your week and that sponge, through the help of daily Bible reading and daily prayer, has enough to put out for the week. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12 says this, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. These verses tell us that God appointed first apostles and prophets, then evangelists and pastor teachers, in order that the saints would be perfected for the work of the ministry, would be perfected that they might edify one another, the body of Christ in love. Throughout the New Testament, the assembly of believers under the teaching of a pastor is intended to be a time of mutual edification and learning so that we can then go out into our week having been filled up that sponge being full, and we can distribute that among those who are not a part of the body. And it's an unfortunate element of the modern church that when people think of serving as a church member, they think only of what they can do during the service. 
This is why we are, this is a part of the reason why we are what we are as a non-age segregated church. Because during the service, I want you here being filled up for the week. Then we can plan ministries for other times of the week. And we can minister in the evenings. And we can minister on Saturdays. And we can minister at these other times. But let's learn. Let's edify each other when we come together. Now you ask, Pastor, what does that mean for you as, as the pastor? Obviously Sundays are not a day of soaking for me as much as forgiving. Well, it means I must devote myself to learning and to filling up throughout the week so that I can give to you on Sunday without burning out or drying out. And if I get so busy that I don't soak, then I don't learn, then I will dry up and become ineffective in my labor as well. So we need to be careful, lest we spend so much time doing, and so much time serving, and so much time even ministering, that we stop learning and growing. And the same can be said for our times of fellowship. May I encourage you, when you invite someone over to your home, now I know you need to be a good host and a good hostess, but don't allow the physical elements of, of the day to take away from the importance of spiritual fellowship and growth. If you're spirit, feeling spiritually dry, then it's time to take inventory of your week to understand why that might be. Are you reading your Bible every day? And I'm not just talking about checking off a list. Are you reading? Are you, are you finding that undistracted time? Even 10 to 15 minutes of undistracted time with God's Word can do amazing things for you. Are you finding that time where God can teach you through His Holy Spirit? Are you spending time in prayer with Him? And, and while we pray without ceasing throughout the day, are you spending, again, even just 10 to 15 minutes in prayer with the Lord can do amazing things for your spirit? Are you regularly attending church, positioning yourself to be able to listen to preaching? Are you prioritizing spiritual fellowship over physical fellowship when you meet with other believers? And please note, I'm not saying don't be hospitable. The Bible says ministers should, uh, particularly pastors, should be given to hospitality. 1 Timothy 3 verse 2. The Bible says that women should be keepers at home, right? Titus chapter 2 verse 5. So I'm not saying that we should neglect our duties, but we need to, you know, we need to care for our children. We need to meet the needs of others. But maybe it is that we need to reprioritize. Maybe it is that when you invite folks over and it's a, it's a, a gathering of believers, whether just a couple of families or a couple of individuals, that you need to plan your time in such a way that there's not a lot of high maintenance. Don't plan a high maintenance meal. Uh, maybe use paper plates. Pastor, I would never use paper plates for guests. Well, maybe, may, maybe you should so that you don't have to clean up so that you can spend more time in the fellowship. Maybe it is that you need to spend that extra time with the children at home, teaching them how to sit still so that, so that we're not distracted as much as church. Maybe we need to reprioritize our home life so that there's a set time for Bible reading when the kids will need to be still and quiet so that they can learn from the Word of God in a way that they perhaps don't learn in the services on Sunday. I know that life can come at us fast, and I know that there's so much to do. And I know that, that uh, none of us is perfect in this regard, and, and, and that we all need to uh, take inventory of, our side, of ourselves regularly. But consider the example that is before us here. On that day that Jesus was in Bethany, there was much to do as well. Martha was busy. She was busy. She was so busy that she really needed Mary's help. And Jesus said, well, maybe instead of asking for Mary's help, you should just join her and do the rest of that later. Because labor cannot replace learning. And Mary, who was sitting at the feet of Jesus, Jesus said, has chosen the better part. She's chosen the better part. Second, first, labor cannot replace learning. Second, learning is ins uh, insufficient without labor. And this is the other side of the coin. Let's go back to that sponge. If you've ever run a sponge underwater, there comes a point where that sponge begins to leak out the other side. It can't hold any more water, right? It absorbs, and then it can't hold any more, and then it stops absorbing, and it starts the water starts pouring out the ends. When a sponge has nothing else left, it dries out and becomes ineffective in its task. 
But the other way around, when a sponge is full, it simply doesn't soak anymore. When you're cleaning up a spill with a sponge, every now and again, you must wring out that sponge if you want that sponge to continue to absorb the spill. If you start cleaning the spill with the sponge and you just keep working that sponge around and around and around, at some point you're just redistributing the liquid because it's not absorbing anymore. You've got to wring out the sponge before that sponge can continue to absorb water. It's the same with a mop, right? The idea. And it's kind of that way with the Christian life as well. Lessons which are once learned take on meaning through the crucible of labor. Labor is where the things that the Bible says meet the reality in which we live and become real to us. So every week you hear stuff here at Legacy Baptist Church. And I tell you things. And I tell you things about life. And I tell you things about godliness. Because I'm telling you what the Bible says. And so we talk about telling others about Christ, sharing the gospel. And we talk about honoring your parents as we did during Sunday school this morning. And we talk about listening to God. And we talk about faith. And we talk about responsibility. And we talk about integrity. And we talk about honesty. And we talk about all of these things. But it becomes real when we live it. That's where what we know becomes what, who we are. I can learn about God all day, but if I'm not going out and living it, none of it has really been a profit to me. There's a big difference between knowledge and faith, isn't there? There's a big difference between theory and practice. James says it perhaps best in James 2, verses 14 to 17. What doth it profit, my brethren, Though a man say he have faith and have not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. This passage is often confused and can ta- be taken quite wrongly. Uh, be taken to, you know, people say, well, what's this idea of can faith save him? Of course faith saves, and uh, we- we'll get into that another day. That's not our point today. But what James is saying is this. Faith has substance. If a person truly believes something to be true, then it will, without fail, inform the way they live their lives, won't it? It will. It has to. Or else they don't really believe it. If I believe the world is going to end tomorrow, if I truly believe the world is going to end tomorrow, it will fundamentally change the way I act, won't it? I will not act the same way. My night tonight will be very different if I believe the world will end tomorrow than it will be Otherwise, if it, if it doesn't change, if my night doesn't change, then I really don't believe the world is going to end tomorrow. If I believe that God is God and he expects me to live a certain way, then it will inform the way I live my life. If I tell you that God, what God expects, but my life doesn't conform to it, it's because I don't really have faith in it. I may think I believe it. I may think I have faith in it. But if my life reflects the opposite, it's because I lack faith. My faith is dead. My favorite example of this today, and I, I, I hesitate to use this because I don't want to sound judgmental to look at a group of people that we disagree with and make fun of them or laugh at them. Because that's, uh, please don't take this in that spirit, um, but I'm going to do it anyway and I pray that it won't become a distraction. Because it's so helpful to me when I think of this. Environmentalists. Environmentalists. They say the planet is Doomed. Doomed. We're all doomed. That the burning of fossil fuels is going to end us. And so they fly around in their private jets to tell us this, right? And they buy their big houses with their bunch of air conditioning units right on the coast that they say the water is going to rise and cover their own house in a matter of 20 years, but they buy the house there anyway. And they travel around with their entourage of SUVs getting seven miles to the gallon. And they go from place to place to tell you and I that if we don't stop driving gas guzzlers, and then we're going to destroy the planet and destroy humanity. And if we don't stop living in big houses and start living in grass huts, the world will end. And if we don't stop buying fossil fuels, the world will end. And if they really believed the stuff that they were preaching, I mean, if they really had faith in this, their lives would look quite differently, wouldn't they? 
Wouldn't they? I mean, if you really believe that we were destroying the planet for future generations, wouldn't that compel you with every ounce of your being to change? I, I would think so, unless they're just horrible people. Wouldn't, wouldn't it change you? So when you see all these scientists and politicians living in grass huts riding bikes, then you should allow yourself to begin to actually think about what they're saying as if they truly believe it. But until then, you can assume that their faith is dead, being alone, and that they have another motive for what they're saying. Now again, I hope that that didn't distract you. I don't want, I don't want to turn this judgmental. So let's turn it back to us. Let's turn it back to you. Let's turn it back to Christians. The same way, what good is all of this learning if it doesn't build in you faith? Okay? Turn it back to you. Don't, don't get stuck on them. Turn it to you. What good is all of this learning if you don't do anything about it? And we cannot say that, it, that the learning has built into us faith if it doesn't inform how we live our lives. If you and I don't share the gospel when we know the Bible says we should, it's because we're not actually convinced that doing so matters. If you and I don't love our neighbor when the Bible commands it, it's because you and I aren't actually convinced that we need to do so. Because our faith is, is lacking. Now, it doesn't mean we're not believers. It doesn't mean we're not trying. But our faith is lacking. If you and I don't obey the word of God when we know the word of God in any context, it's because our faith has not yet caught up to our knowledge. We've learned it, but we haven't come to the place in our lives where we actually believe it truly with enough faith to make us invest in it. Whether that's faith into salvation or whether that's faith unto sanctification, there is a line, right, that we all have to our faith. We were talking about that a little bit this afternoon. That to whatever degree we will show faith in God, God is faithful, right? He's not the one that's going to fail. He's not the one that's going to falter. He's not the one that's going to fall short of his promises. So if we fall short of obtaining any of God's promises, it's because of our faith. And so we come to church on Sunday... And we listen, and then we spend all of our week listening to sermons online, and we know the Bible really, really well, and you can talk about the Bible, but if you're still caught up in the same sins, and you're still stuck in the same ruts of selfishness, then what good is it doing you? Maybe you're like that sponge, where you've soaked up so much that you're just, you're not really soaking anymore. You're hearing it, and you know it, but it it, it can't do anything for you, because you're not out living it. And so you're not serving anybody. Do you know some of the most important times in my life for learning about God is when I'm out serving others, teaching others, helping others understand the gospel, guiding others, mentoring others, counseling others, whatever it might be, sharing the gospel, being talked at, at a, you know, talking to people on a doorstep, talking to people at the park, asking them about their, their faith, uh, hearing their questions, uh, their concerns, answering those concerns, seeing the Holy Spirit work through me, seeing the Holy Spirit use me because I've forgiven or because I've loved or because I've given of myself to someone and watching how the Spirit of God can take that and use it. And that's the stuff that makes it real. That's the stuff that builds our faith. If everything that you know is the Because you've never gone out and you've never served others. And you've never spent your time pouring your life into someone else. And you've never spent your money pouring it into someone else. And you've never actually ministered to others. Then that might very well be why you're not finding victory. Because you're, you, you, you're, you're that sponge that has soaked and you're full and so you're hearing more and you're learning more but it's not really changing you because you have nothing left in you. You're, you're, you're stuck on the lessons that you just, you're there, you know them but the faith hasn't translated yet and that's because you're not doing anything. Are you doing something? Are you serving? And as I say this, please don't feel like, you know, when I say you, I'm singling you out. We all have a line, don't we? Every one of us has a line which we've drawn. Even the disciples had lines. Jesus is crossing the Sea of Galilee and there's a great storm. 
They knew what Jesus could do, but they still feared, didn't they? There was a line. A line where their faith had not yet crossed. They knew what Jesus could do, but they still couldn't multiply the loaves and the fishes. They knew what Jesus could do, but they still couldn't cast out that demon. Earlier in the book of Luke, Luke 9. So I'm not standing here so that we can find out who's the good Christian and who's the bad Christian. Much to the contrary, I stand here encouraging you to search your own heart, to discern where that line is, and to seek to push that line further. Are you? What are you doing? See, because labor cannot replace learning, certainly. If you're encumbered about doing too much, whether that's for the ministry or whether that's just you, you and so you're not taking the time to learn and to grow and to edify one another, then you're, you're going to dry out. But also, learning is insufficient without labor. If you're not taking what you've learned and going out and living it and using it and doing what you know God wants you to do, then you're going to stagnate. You won't be able to progress any farther. Are you busy about much serving? Has your service come to replace learning so that you aren't growing because you've just dried out, you're too busy? Or are you busy about much learning so that you've replaced doing, so that you aren't growing because you're so busy absorbing that you don't go out there and do anything with it? Or have you found that joyful balance? Where you're learning, and then you're doing, and then you're coming back for more learning, refilling the sponge, so that you can go and use that sponge throughout the week. Touch the lives of others. You labor and you learn, and as you reach the boundaries of your faith, you patiently seek to press those boundaries to grow in grace and knowledge and to become more like Christ. Are you investing in people? Are you investing in your church? Third point, final point. First, labor cannot replace learning. Second, learning is insufficient without labor. Finally, number three, when the physical begins to overrule the spiritual, you are likely out of balance. How do we find this balance? Let's take a step back even farther, beyond just labor and learning, and consider the principle of the spiritual versus the physical. As Paul spoke to the church in Corinth about marriage, marriage is a wonderful thing, an honorable estate, But he encouraged the people in that city to remain unmarried if they could do so without sin. And he told them this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 29 to 31. But this I say, brethren, the time is short. It remaineth that both they which have wives be as they that had none. And they that weep as though they wept not. And they that rejoice as though they rejoice not. And they that buy as though they possess not. And they that use this world as not abusing it for the fashion of this world passeth away. Paul told the church that time is short, and because time is short, we need to keep the physical things in perspective. If I may put it this way, we need to keep them at arm's length. We need to be willing to see them go if they need to go, or when they are they are, are asked to go. We need to understand that for the believer, everything physical in this world must exist in subjection to the spiritual, so that when we're asked to choose between physical priorities and spiritual priorities, the spiritual wins every time. Why was it that Paul was saying time is short and there's coming a time where those who have wives will need to be as those who have none? Because there was going to come a time where persecution was going to be great for the church. It's going to be terrible. And it was coming very soon for, for this church in Corinth as well as around the Roman Empire. And in that time, it was hard to be married. Because they might very well make you choose between your wife and your God. And on that day where they had to choose between their wife and their God, they had to choose their God. On the day where we're asked to choose between the physical and the spiritual, are you prepared to choose the spiritual? We use the world. We don't abuse the world. Our loyalties do not remain upon this world, but only upon the things of the world to come. So that Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 6, verses 33 and 34, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. Live trusting the Lord, keeping the spiritual as the main thing. The priorities of the spiritual need to supersede the priorities of the, of the physical. Young people, The priorities, your spiritual life is the most important thing. 
Don't worry about your spouse. Don't worry about your job. God will take care of those things. Are you right spiritually? Stay right spiritually. Let those things come as God will bring them. Let those things, let those priorities work themselves out through Christ, through the guidance of your parents, the guidance of your pastor, the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Let God deal with that. You deal with you. If you're letting your spiritual life rot out because you're thinking of the physical, you've got a major imbalance. And it, need, it needs to change before you collapse spiritually. John would put it this way in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. The world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. I know I'm not going all that deep this evening. I'm not even getting all that pointed. I'm presenting a principle which undergirds the essence of the Christian life. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus because she knew full well that the world will pass away, but the will of God abides forever. Mary sat at the feet of Jesus because there would be plenty of time to do the dishes later. Jesus is here now. He's not here all the time. Let's sit at the feet of Jesus now and do the dishes later. Those dishes are going to burn one day. They're not going to stay. They're part of the earth. They're earthy. Let's focus on the spiritual while it's here. Here's Jesus in the presence for a short while. There'll be plenty of opportunities to do the labor. Let's sit at the feet of Jesus while he's here. Don't yield the spiritual blessings for the sake of cultural propriety. Don't yield the spiritual blessings for the sake of physical enjoyments. And may I encourage the same for us. Young people, the world is a big and exciting place. There are many opportunities available to you. Many great paths that you can take. But may I encourage you to make sure that the physical priorities of this life are always underneath the spiritual. Always. That you will not position your life to go in a direction where what you want from this life is more important than what you know God wants of you from this life. That you will not sacrifice future spiritual blessings on the altar of current physical desires. Church member, God has given you the liberty to use this world in every virtuous way. That's what we're learning about in Ecclesiastes. But may I encourage you to take care that you use the world without loving this world. That you don't come to a place where your desire for the physical hinders your loyalty to the spiritual. And in a world where, like ours today, this is difficult, isn't it? I mean, Sunday has become the day of fun stuff, hasn't it? Sunday is kind of the day around here. It's the day for fishing. It's the day for sports. It's the day for kids' activities now. They're doing kids' stuff on Sundays all the time now. May I encourage you that it's not worth yielding the assembly of the saints. I know a bunch of great stuff takes place in the evening. But you know what? Sometime we, the church has to minister sometime. May I encourage you to be willing, at least from time to time, to yield the physical in order to invest in the spiritual. I know you're tired and you want to sleep in, but are you missing out on ministries? I know it's awkward to tell your friends and neighbors about Christ, but does their salvation matter more than their approval? You see what we're saying here? Have the physical things in life begun to override the spiritual, or have they completely consumed the spiritual for you? Your life, your family... If it has, you're likely out of balance. And if you see it, if the Spirit of God is taking his thumb and saying, that thing, that thing, or those things, would, would you deal with it? It's not every day that Mary could sit at the feet of Jesus. So while the opportunity existed, she took it. Jesus told Martha that Mary had chosen something that would not be taken away from her. It was eternal. Are you so cumbered about laboring today that you've yielded the blessing of spiritual learning and growth? Would you reprioritize? Are you so busy learning that you aren't taking the time to 
put it out and to serve and to, and to labor for the Lord? Would you reprioritize? Is there an area of your life where the physical things of this life have deeply overridden the spiritual? You don't have time to read your Bible and you don't have time to pray, but you have time to watch that show or play that video game or sit in a boat for a couple hours or fill in the, fill in the gap. Do that, do that house project, but you don't have time to open your Bible. Whatever it might be, if the physical has overridden the spiritual and you see an imbalance, would, would you reprioritize? Because there's coming a day when you and I will stand before God. And on that day, it's not going to matter what job you had. And it's not going to matter how many fish you caught. And it's not going to matter whether or not you saw that historic football game. And it's not going to matter how big your house was. And it's not going to matter if your kitchen was clean. Right, ladies? What's going to matter? All that's going to burn up. It's just going to, it's going to burn up. What is going to matter? is whether or not you invested in the spiritual. When you sat under the word of God and you learned and you took that knowledge and you raised godly children, that will last. That will not be taken away. When you sit under the word of God and you learned and you went out to a lost world and you shared it, that will not be taken away. When you took the time to set down that physical priority, that job, that whatever it might be, and you reached out to encourage a Christian in the Lord, that will not be taken away. When you yielded that paycheck so that you could assemble among the believers, that will not be taken away. When you got up a little earlier to spend time with the Lord in, in Bible reading and prayer, that will not be taken away. And if we believe it, if, if, if we believe it, if, if we have that faith, then it will fundamentally change the way we live our lives. Are we choosing the better part, the good part? Are we doing that one thing which is needful? Let's close in prayer.